You're listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast, episode 14. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast, an audio podcast all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. I'm your host, David Michael, and thank you so much for joining us today. Wanted to talk a little bit about some uh, news starting off in this episode of the podcast. Uh, NAM just wrapped up, NAM 2015, and as many of you know, that's when uh, a lot of new DJ gear gets kind of announced or uh, you know shown off by the manufacturers. So uh, kind of all the buzz lately has been the uh, the Rain MP 2015, which is that uh, new rotary mixer that just came out. So for those who aren't aware, a rotary mixer just replaces the line faders or the channel faders of your mixer with actual knobs with the claim that uh, a lot of people feel that it's a lot more precise or uh, easy to make small adjustments. Great for those long blends and stuff. And rotary mixers have kind of fallen out of favor in the mainstream um, over time. And uh, so it's kind of cool to see this, uh, a company like Rain especially, to throw out something uh, that's it's kind of a throwback, but also just a really really nice mixer. Has some great sound shaping options and and so on. I uh, wrote a quick post about that on the blog. They also announced their TTM 57 Mark II, the uh, infamous kind of scratch oriented Serato mixer, is finally getting an update. So a lot of the old school Serato guys are super excited about that. The uh, Pioneer XDJ RX, which is that new uh, all in one unit from Pioneer that doesn't require a laptop you can slap uh you know usb sticks or various sources into it and it's a standalone device which is not a new concept but this is one of the first ones with a display which is kind of the big trend going on in the dj gear world right now uh speaking of which newmark introduced their ns7 3 uh, once again, with displays right on the unit. This is following the trend set by the, uh, the new marks, uh, the new Mark NV, and the Control S8. Uh, onboard screens are where it's at right now, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes in 2015. Another announcement: uh, There's a new film being worked on called The Warehouse. The new film pays tribute to the late Frankie Knuckles and uh, the Chicago nightclub called The Warehouse. Frankie Knuckles is often heralded as the godfather of house music, so this is a pretty cool, uh, or at least intriguing film that's coming out soon. Hopefully they do justice to the late Frankie Knuckles. Um, I have a little blurb here from Resident Advisor. They say, uh, titled The Warehouse, the movie is being produced by Bob Teedle, whose previous films include Men of Honor and Barbershop. Billy Deck, who will also act in the movie, Randy Crumpton, and Smart Bar's Joe Shanahan. Not much is known about the warehouse just yet, though a press release says it'll pay tribute to the life story of the warehouse owner, Robert Williams, and the legacy of Knuckles' timeless artistry. Growing up in Chicago, I always knew about the warehouse and its ties to house and dance music, says Tietel. What amazes me is what started as a fad in a small Chicago club in the late 70s has evolved into the biggest genre of music in the world. And then they go on to say that they're having a launch party for the film at the Underground in Chicago on Tuesday, March 31st, 
which is exactly one year from the Frankie Knuckles' death. And then all tickets proceeds will go to the Frankie Knuckles Foundation. So rest in peace, Frankie Knuckles, and hopefully they do justice to this legend. Uh, another announcement, DMC World announced some new online competition categories. So for those of you who are kind of into the whole uh, scratching, cutting, turntabling competition thing, uh, the first thing you should do is go back and listen to my interview with Vect, who is a world champion and has a lot to say on these matters. And then you should check out these new categories. They have uh, This is their fifth year doing the online championships. And now they've added an online team DJ championship, online visual DJ for those uh, you know VJs out there. Um, this is a growing field, so it's pretty cool to see them taking that on. Then a pure scratch competition and an under-18s championship. And I think that's the most intriguing of all, to see where all these uh, young bloods are going to come in and, and show off and put all of us experienced DJs to shame, or at least as older ones. So uh, that's pretty cool to see. Um, you can check out more about that at DMC... Let me make sure I read this right. DMCDJonline.com. Uh, today, our main topic, this is a solo show. I don't have a uh, co-host or an interviewee today, though I am thinking about mixing up the format a little bit. I would like to do some more co-hosting. I like the back and forth banter and that sort of thing, but uh, also just to provide some variety. You know, I think I'm thinking about maybe bringing in like a whole panel of people to just chat and see what comes up and uh, record the best bits and put it into a podcast. Uh, maybe some people that we've talked to on the podcast before, maybe some new ones. I think that would be a cool way to spice things up. Also thought it would be cool to do some sort of live show, uh, maybe set up uh, Google Hangouts or some kind of webinar interface, and then get on and do a show, record it live, and maybe get some feedback from you while we're actually recording the show, uh, have you submit questions in a chat room or something like that. I uh, thought that might be fun. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, I'd love to hear it. I appreciate your feedback. Hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash passionate DJ. Hit me up on Twitter at DJ with passion. Or as always, you, you're welcome to send me a message or an email at david at passionate DJ.com. But today's topic is all about sound quality. And before we dive into this, I have an apology to one of the people who submitted a question for last week's podcast. Um, in episode 13, Joseph Simono left a message asking about um, the sound quality and at what point is it uh, does it make sense to invest in higher-end gear. And what he was referring to is actually the source of sound, in other words, the all the gear that's before it gets out to the house sound. So in other words, your mixer, your controller, or your CDJ, or your effects unit, or audio interface, any of that stuff, your actual DJ gear. Um, well, I'll just read his response to you here because we've been emailing back and forth. Joseph writes, Thank you for all the work you put into your answer, but I feel like I should have been clearer. I'm 100% with you on the question you answered, and I mostly agree with your advice. But what I was asking was actually about the gear before it goes to the main and booth systems. As far as I'm concerned, all I'm responsible for as a DJ is sending a clean, usable signal to the front of house system. Amplifying it is usually someone else's responsibility, except at home and friends' houses. There are some of the techno guys using RME audio interfaces that are unquestionably better than, say, native instruments. 
The differences are subtle, but they're there. And with most DJ gear, they're obliterated by the quote-unquote good enough ADC going into the mixer. That's audio or analog digital converter. My question was actually, when do you think it becomes beneficial to go for higher-end audio interfaces, processing effects, etc., before the FOH system? In other words, before it goes out to the house, the front-of-house system. After diminishing returns kick in, whatever you feel like. And then he goes on to compliment me on the sound quality I was able to get out of my episode 13 recording using just an iPad. So appreciate that. Joseph, I apologize that I misunderstood your question, and uh, you're absolutely right. You, I just misunderstood, so I apologize. And I kind of figured, you know, rather than just write you back a message or to... I, I originally was going to just address this at the beginning of the podcast, and then I said, well, why don't I just make an entire episode about sound quality? That's definitely something that's relevant to the passionate DJ audience, and... And it seems like something that would be fun to talk about. So, Joseph, this episode is entirely dedicated to you. We're going to take an entire hour or so and just talk about sound quality. And uh, hopefully that will be a uh, more appropriate and sufficient answer for your question. Now, obviously, the first thing that comes up when we start talking about sound quality, especially with DJs or producers or audiophiles, you always have this vinyl argument come up, right? Vinyl versus MP3. Vinyl versus CD. Vinyl versus Wave or Flack. And then you have the lossy versus lossless argument. So it's it's the same old kind of format wars that we're used to. But, you know, is there any, um, is there any weight to either side of the argument? Well... I think uh, the best thing that we could do is kind of talk about how digital audio actually works, and uh, maybe you can make that determination for yourself. It's not a new concept to say that vinyl sounds different than digital. Um, There's a a lot different consideration that has to go in when you're mastering for vinyl, for instance. Um, If you make things too bass-heavy or phased the wrong way, the needle will just jump out of the groove and it's unplayable. It's inherently different, it has to be, than uh, what you can get away with in digital. But does that make one format superior than the other? Well, before we get into that, the other argument that we have is this lossy versus lossless thing, and that's wave or flack versus MP3. You know, some people say 320 kilobit MP3 files are not sufficient to play on like a festival level sound system. Some are perfectly happy with 192, and they always have been. Some people will never play anything other than a straight wave file. So, you know, what what do we actually end up with when we take away audio information from one of these compressed files? The difference between a 320 uh, MP3 versus, say, a 192 or a 128, you might hear a difference, you might not. You might think you hear a difference, you might not. But you definitely notice a difference in file size. All right, so that audio information is going somewhere. And every uh, sort of MP3 encoder has its own algorithms and stuff to come up with um, uh, the end result of the smaller file. But typically they try to take away frequencies that you don't hear first, and then they take away frequencies that you will notice less, and then they go from there. And there's some sort of formula that works into all that. So what I've done is I've actually created a video 
that will demonstrate the the actual difference between uh, a WAV file and a 320, a 192, and a 96, just for fun. Nobody's going to play a 9... Please don't play a 96 bitrate file out somewhere, but uh, just to uh, give an example... Um, I put this video together, and you can check it out. Uh, let me see, let me give you a nice clean URL: passionatedj.com forward slash bitrate, and it will explain uh, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about on the podcast today, but uh, might help you to have the visual and to hear it. But what I have done, I'll, I'll kind of give you a brief explanation. What you do is you take, uh, I took a pure wave file, just something I bought straight off a of Beatport. And I put it into audio editing software, um, Audacity. You can do this with; it's free. And I took it and I imported the MP or the WAV file, and then I made an MP3 version at 320, 192, and 96. Okay. Now, if you take two exact copies of the same audio file of the same waveform, and you lay them on top of each other but you take one of them and invert it. In other words, you convert it to the complete opposite waveform. So in other words, if you look at uh, a sine wave looks kind of like an S, a sideways S, uh, basically you would just have an upside down and backwards S. So when the wave is going up on the top, the bottom waveform is going down and vice versa. So you end up with this kind of, maybe it looks kind of like DNA or a series of bubbles instead of just a wave um, and what ends up happening is they cancel each other out mathematically because the the opposite of a waveform sounds exactly like the original you can't really tell the difference but when you overlay them on top of each other if you take an upside down or a sideways s and then a sideways s that's facing the other way to where you get these kind of like spaghetti noodle looking thing um, you end up with silence because uh, mathematically they cancel each other out. So that may not make sense. It'll be helpful to watch the video. But what you end up with if you do that with, uh, say, a compressed version of that file versus the WAV file, you end up with the difference between those two tracks being spit out. So you can actually, when you play it, instead of getting silence, you end up with kind of the information that was removed to give you that compressed file. So basically, the more you hear, the more audio information is being removed from that file. So I'm going to play these examples for you right now. Here is the WAV file. Here is the WAV file paired with the inverted 320 kilobit version. Okay, so there's some sound there. You can hear it's kind of uh, a lot of uh, the sizzle, the highs are taken out, but uh, you know, it's pretty quiet. There's not a whole lot taken out here. Now here it is as compared to the 192. Okay, a little more going on there. And then uh, just for giggles, we'll put it versus a 96-bit rate file and see what we come up with. 
Okay, so as you can see, there's definitely a major difference between them. Um, if you couldn't tell the difference between listening to a WAV file and listening to the 320 before, uh, this at least gives you an audio demonstration of what's been pulled out. Now, that being said, in the context of the song itself, you're probably hearing a whole lot of stuff you wouldn't have missed. So I wouldn't panic about it suddenly now that you've heard the difference that you have to go through and, and pay the upcharge and, and buy a bunch of WAV files. Um, don't panic. I'm just doing this for demonstration purposes to show you more of the difference between, say, a 192 and a 320. Uh, plus, it's just kind of cool, cool geeky thing to perform as an experiment. So uh, what I want to do next is talk about some terminology because probably one of the biggest hurdles in learning anything about digital sound and sound quality and that sort of thing is communicating with other people and using like terminology. Uh, in other words, uh, making sure that you're both on the same page of what you're actually talking about. So the first thing I want to address uh, is uh, analog versus digital. Let's just get that out of the way. Uh, most people kind of have an idea of what this is. Analog refers to a constant, smooth signal as it might occur in nature or would occur in an electrical circuit it's it's waves okay so this is kind of like the sine wave we're talking about digital doesn't really have a way to perfectly replicate a say an audio file or an audio waveform what it does instead of spitting out the same exact audio data i guess you could say um, what it does is it goes through and samples little bits of it here and there. So what this gets into is bit rate versus sample rate. So the way, and this is addressed in that video too, but um, just to give you kind of an idea of how this works, say you're drawing a circle, okay? An analog, we'll call it an analog circle. It's just a circle that's perfectly drawn. Um, just pretend like you're the best, best artist in the world and you're able to draw a perfect circle, okay? And then if you want to have a digital representation of that circle, what you would do is instead you would draw a bunch of dots around in a circle motion, okay? And then you would connect those dots together with lines. Now, the more dots you put on there to represent that circle, the more curved dots you have, you know, think of playing connect the dots, the smoother that circle, the smoother that curvature of the circle is going to be. That's what represents sample rate. The more dots there are to represent the circle that's your frequency or your rate that it's sampling bits of audio that it wants to represent so it's all numbers all right analog is the pure natural signal digital is basically a numerical representation of it over and over again there's just numbers 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 uh digital literally means ones and zeros um and it's it gets you know mathematically complicated beyond that but this gives you an idea of why a why people claim that analog is better than digital but also b why digital never degrades over time digital either works or it doesn't uh so you end up with this uh these people selling these like ten thousand dollar hdmi cables for your home theater system uh please do not buy into that crap Digital cables are digital cables. If you're getting data, you're getting data, period. Please don't fall into this. 
digital signals, this is the benefit of digital signals, is that they don't degrade. They either work or they don't. Um, the other kind of terminology confusion that comes in is with the word digital itself. So this is like a digital versus digital. People, especially DJs, like to differentiate between I'm a vinyl DJ or I'm a CD DJ or I'm a digital DJ. If you're playing digital music, you're a digital DJ. So anybody who's not playing straight wax is a digital DJ, technically. CDs are definitely digital. So, and I don't do, I don't say all that just to be pretentious and, and, <laughs> point out a, a common error but it's worth bringing this up in the discussion that when when we're talking about digital in the in the context of this podcast i'm talking about literally this is a digital signal we're talking about bits and bytes ones and zeros this is data that we're passing back and forth not an analog audio signal uh, perhaps a better way to refer to a laptop type dj would be virtual but then that gets into its own <laughs> Well, you can't say virtual DJ because that's its own software. So we call it digital DJ, but even you know people who play straight off CDJ or CDJs are digital DJs as well. Oh, getting back into this bit rate versus sample rate. So on the my draw a circle analogy, those uh, amount of dots that make up the circle, rep, you know, as we talked about, that represents sample rate. Um, sample rate can be thought of as how much or how often the sound, how much of the sound is described. Bit rate describes how well the sound is described. Bit rate represents, you could also call it bit depth. It measures the volume of each tick, of each sample. Uh, so in CD quality audio, CD quality has 44,100 measurement ticks in one second. So those things that we were using to write the dots around the circle, okay, those that represents sampling audio. Uh, they've got 44,100 of those measurements. That could also be expressed as 44.1 kilohertz, okay? That's why you've heard that term before. 44.1 kilohertz, 16-bit. The 16-bit refers to the bit rate or bit depth of the file. The reason that it's called 16-bit is because 2 to the 16th power is 65,536, and that's how many volumes, how many vol levels of volume CD audio can handle. That's basically what makes up all your digital audio. There's a lot more to it that goes into it, and I don't want to get super technical with dithering and all these various things, And but that's basically it. You've got your sample rate and your bit rate. And that's how you end up with CD quality, 44.1 kilohertz, 16-bit audio. Now, compression. This is another confusing term when we're talking about sound quality because compression means a couple of different things, especially in the world of audio. You're talking about compression as in using a compressor on an audio track. That's something different than the, the let's say, file size compression of mp3 you know when i'm talking about compressing a sound file to make an mp3 i'm talking about making a smaller file using some sort of algorithm to make the file size smaller but compression can also mean in an audio sense a uh, device or a plugin which is meant to bring quiet sounds up and loud sounds down in other words it reduces dynamic range 
quiet sounds are louder, your louder sounds are quieter, and uh, you can hear this effect if you listen to maybe a radio broadcast that's live sometimes, and they'll uh, they'll say something, and then they'll pause, and then you'll hear the noise, kind of like white noise, just fade in between their talking, that and then they start talking again, and it goes away. That's a very slow attack compressor doing its job. It thinks, oh, they're speaking really quietly now. I need to boost the signal. So that's what that effect is. It's, compression is not the same as loudness or volume. Okay, so it's uh, the way I'd think about it is if you think about a room with a tall ceiling and then you're walking through this room and you get to a hallway and this hallway has a very short ceiling, okay? So if you're if you're very tall, and you know, say you're six feet tall, and this is only a four foot tall hallway, you've got to duck down, you've got to squish yourself down to fit into that hallway. All right, that's compression. That's taking the the parts that are too loud or too tall and pushing them down so that you don't whack your head, <laughs> because whacking your head is called clipping, and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, but in our uh, our tall man analogy, there's there's two different things to talk about when you're talking about compressors. There's compression and there's limiting. Now, when you're using a compressor or a limiter, uh, the the terminology is very fuzzy between the two because they're both kind of the same thing. Uh, basically, it's the um, the intent and the amount to which they are used. A limiting is more just like a hard ceiling. So the way I think about it is. Our hallway and our analogy, if you're using a limiter, it's a hard stone ceiling. You walk to that ceiling and you've got to duck down. You don't have a choice. Compression might be more like a spandex ceiling, okay, where you like walk to the hallway and uh, it's pushing you down, but you could kind of push up a little bit if you're particularly tall and you can at least fit through there as long as you fit within the, uh, the tolerance or the stretching range of that spandex. Okay, so that's kind of what compression does. It tries to gently say, uh-uh, you can't go louder than this. Limiting says, too bad, you're not going louder than this. This is hard stone ceiling, baby. So you're just stuck with it. Now, when you're talking clipping, this is what happens when you push a digital signal too high. In other words, um, when you take... If you imagine a waveform, where we talked about a sine wave earlier, it looks like a sideways S. Okay, if you amplify that signal, the S gets bigger. You amplify it more, it gets bigger. And you keep amplifying it, you keep amplifying it, eventually you're going to hit the top of your limit of where your waveform is. And what happens is it just cuts it straight across. So you end up with something that looks more like a square wave. Okay, so you end up with a flat line and then it comes up the top and then it's a flat line. So you end up with just, a, that's a square wave. Okay, that's clipping, that's bad. That's digital distortion. It sounds terrible. It's bad for you. It ruins things. Stay away, okay? So from our tall man analogy, if limiting is a hard stone ceiling and compression is a spandex ceiling, clipping is like using a buzzsaw instead of a ceiling at all. It's just cutting off the heads of your waveforms, okay? This sounds like garbage, so we want to stay away from clipping. That's not necessarily the same thing as distortion. It is a form of distortion, but distortion just refers to anything that modifies the original audio signal. Uh, so, in a way, all audio signals are 
distortions of sound. Um, but it's important to make that distinction because when people talk about distortion, some forms of distortion are desirable. The genre of heavy metal would not exist without distortion, okay? So it's not always, distortion doesn't mean bad or damage or warning necessarily, um, but clipping does. Lossy versus lossless. What this refers to is uh, basically whether or not a particular audio file format degrades the audio in favor of giving you a smaller file size or not. Because there are some file compression algorithms out there like FLAC, F-L-A-C, which can reduce the file size and not degrade the audio whatsoever. So it would be the exact same audio signal coming out. It'd be like just like listening to a CD or, or whatever, the original source, uh, but the file is smaller than a WAV file because it eliminates some of the um, unheard frequencies and silence and that sort of thing, and you end up with a not quite as small as an MB3 file, but you end up with a smaller version of that perfectly replicated sound. So there are various types of lossy formats like MP3, um, you know, your AAC files that you get from iTunes, .mov files if you're making video. That Those are all different lossy formats. JPEG is a lossy type of picture file because raw images are enormous and they take too long to download or to pull up on a web page, which is why the format exists in the first place. So, you know, compression is not a bad thing. Lossy compression is not a bad thing. You just have to be aware of what it's doing to your files. Um, the other thing I want to bring up is stereo versus mono. Uh, because this is a concept that I always assume people know, and yet I see people get it wrong all the time. So I just want to address this. Um, you have There's actually three things. You've got stereo, which is two separate distinct sound channels that are meant to be used together to represent an audio field. So you know what stereo is. Everything's in stereo these days. Your TV's in stereo. Well, some TVs are mono, but if you've got it hooked up to any kind of receiver... Um, your laptop speakers, your headphones, this is all stereo. You've got a left channel and a right channel, and they kind of combine to make a stereo field. You can hear things kind of in between the left and right channel. You've got mono, which is just, all that means is one audio signal. So technically, if you have a stereo signal, if you're listening on your headphones, your left headphone, your left channel is receiving a mono signal, and your right channel is receiving a mono signal. Those two mono signals are forming your stereo signal, which is separate from dual mono. Dual mono is a uh, term which describes distinct audio tracks that are not meant to be representative of each other. So uh, say if you were... Uh, at a karaoke bar, and you've got music coming out of one speaker, and you've got the voices coming out of another speaker, that would describe a dual mono setup. And just as a side note, a lot of nightclubs and things, uh, places where you will gig out, are in mono. Uh, so that is something to be aware of. It Really, it makes sense, because if you think about it, um, you know, you've got a, a dance floor and you don't want to be blasting people with the left channel on one side and blasting people with the right channel on the other uh, when you're dealing with dance music. Um, unless you're in a, some kind of fancy concert hall or something, um, or you've got a small enough uh, controlled dance, well-controlled dance floor where you can kind of get an even stereo spread, uh, a lot of clubs just play it in mono. So 
something to be aware of. And the other thing I want to warn about is, you know, beware of undefined kind of subjective fluffy terms that people like to use to describe sound, such as warmth. That's probably the biggest offender. Uh, Muddy, tinny, harsh, words like that. Uh, I'm not saying don't use them, but it's it's important to take it with a grain of salt because everybody means something different when they use these words. You know, it might not be the same thing that you think warmth is when they say that. So, you know, if you're reading a, a review for a piece of audio equipment and they talk about how warm or how muddy or how harsh something is, uh, it's important to kind of try to take more than that person's word for it because who knows what they're really talking about there. So there are a number of things that affect the perceived sound quality of music, right? We've got bit rate and file compression like we talked about. We've got gain staging, key lock, concessions made for convenience, bandwidth, environment, and yes, the placebo effect. So I want to take a moment to talk about each of these. Uh, Gain staging. Stay out of the red already. Okay, (laughs) I don't know why so many DJs have this propensity to just slam all their music into the red. Here's the problem. Because so many people have spent so many years doing that, over time, equipment manufacturers have made up for this by adding all sorts of headroom to their gear and then making the red lights light up sooner or the yellow lights or whatever on their mixer So they're basically compensating for the ignorance of DJs who don't know how to control their levels. I'm sorry to be harsh, guys, but please, for the love of God, stay out of the red. I don't care if you're you're using a new Pioneer mixer, an old Pioneer mixer, or whatever. Check your manuals, and they might tell you where you're supposed to stage your volume at. But the safest, most consistent way to not have to worry about it is to stay out of the red. Um, your front of house person, if you're connecting to a house system and you're lucky enough to have an audio engineer there helping out, is going to love you if you know how to do this because you're going to make it sound worse if the signal you send to the front of house system is too hot and he has nowhere to go and he's just going to turn you down and this is going to start a war between you and the guy who knows what he's doing. Okay, And then you just end up with this smashed together, kind of faux compressed, nasty sounding everything's the same volume set. And that's not the way, you know, taking away your dynamic range is not how you have a set that can have any sort of impact on people. You want to give yourself that room. So please stay out of the red. Uh, What I do typically for most of my gear, if it's something I'm not familiar with, I set my gains to where the loudest part of the track is kind of barely touching the first led indicator that's different than green okay so if it's just got a red light um i try to get it to where just the very loudest peaks might barely turn that on every once in a while i find that to be a very safe consistent level across just about any piece of equipment i've used at just about any venue and if they say the signal's not loud enough then they can turn it up and then it's on them but um or they can have you turn it up but uh please don't make it the norm to just smash all of your volumes up as loud as they go to the point where the lights don't even turn off. Uh, That's one of the worst things you can do, and it's rampant. The other thing that can affect sound quality as a DJ is key lock. 
um, or Master Tempo, you might know it as. This is the uh, functionality of a lot of DJ gear, which allows you to keep a consistent key or pitch of your music, regardless of sort of how it, uh, what speed is being played at, what tempo. Uh, so, in other words, you could, you know, take your, back when you're playing records, if you were to pitch something up to, to plus 8%, you might kind of get that chipmunk effect, and uh, this keeps that from happening, keeps everything the same pitch, it just plays through faster. Keylock algorithm is a fantastic invention, um, but it does affect the sound, and I've heard a lot of arguments both ways on this. Personally... I use Keylock quite a bit. I use Keylock more than most people I know. I just happen to think that the consistency of having something in Keylock, like when I play a track, I know what it's going to sound like. I have an ear for that sort of thing, and I can kind of tell if the uh, if I want to kind of go in a harmonic mixing direction. I kind of have stuff that pop into my he- stuff that pops into my head that I might be able to play that would be key compatible, and not having Keylock on would mess that up for me. Um, do I notice a difference in the sound? If I'm listening on headphones, uh, once in a while I can tell the difference. Certain, there's a certain kind of buzzy bass line range, which is stuff that I don't play that often, so I don't notice it that much. But every now and then there's a certain track that'll come in, and <clears throat> if I turn on and off the key lock, the sound just kind of loses its impact. So there are times where I will preview and or if I maybe I'll make a note and say, okay, this track is something that I should not key lock because it sounds notably different. Um, that's something to definitely be aware of. So you might try kind of A-B testing some of your tracks uh, with headphones on and maybe you'll be able to tell a difference if you can't, uh, you know, use whichever, whichever method serves you. If you're playing a lot of just techno or things that, uh, you know, stuff that doesn't have a lot of... Uh, key that you have to worry about anyway uh turn it off there's no reason to have it on for you this is much more helpful for people who play tracks with uh, a lot of vocals or uh you know something like trance or or something where you you would have a notable difference if you were to pitch it up convenience this is another thing that really affects sound quality uh this is kind of a sound quality versus convenience war that's ongoing all the time if you think about this, this is this is kind of um, I'm, I'm going to tie this in with the next point, which is bandwidth versus bitrate. So it, there's kind of this constant battle of I mean we we're at a point now technologically where we can have near perfect replication of any kind of audio you want. Just the equipment's there, the technology's there. It's it's an audiophile's dream to be alive in 2015, right? But there are certain things that haven't caught up to us like our network bandwidth on the internet Uh, this is the reason that you know netflix youtube and if you want to talk audio soundcloud all these kind of services have their own compression algorithms which kind of do the same thing as mp3 so that it's streaming stuff to you in slightly less quality and much smaller file size because the alternative is to just clog the entire internet up with all this stuff, and we just don't quite have the pipes to handle that yet. Probably someday, this is all this stuff is going to be a non-issue. Storage space is going to be near infinite, and it's just going to go on and on. But you know, think about now what what kind of concessions do we make for convenience when it comes to sound quality? We've got these little Bluetooth speakers. 
right? They're just little wireless things that make your laptop sound a little bit better. Uh, we've got sound bars for TVs now. That's kind of the hot thing. Instead of getting a full, you know, 5.1, 7.1, or whatever kind of TH, THX certified big subwoofer sound system, now we've got sound bars, and some of them come with, you know, a little wireless sub. Because people are willing to make concessions. They say, yes, I know this doesn't sound as good as this $5,000 system, but it costs $300 and sounds way better. So there's that kind of compromise that you have to make. All this stuff affects sound quality. It's, it's not that we don't have the technology. It's just a convenience or a uh, maybe a bottleneck issue in some other part of technology that we haven't solved yet. And this is where a lot of these limitations come in. Now, the probably the biggest thing that affects sound quality or the perceived sound quality of music has nothing to do with your gear. This is probably one of the biggest points I'm going to make in this episode of the podcast. The acoustic properties of your listening environment are going to make way more of a difference than the difference between a $300 and a $2,000 audio interface. So this message is directly for you, Joe, for asking this question. The environment is usually out of your control uh, if you're in a performance setting. I mean, you have control over your own room to an extent, uh, wherever you practice or perform at home. But there has to be some point where you say this is good enough. And chasing perfection is going to get you nowhere. It's going to make, it's going to stall you. You need to realize that at a certain point, okay, I'm going to get this as good as I can reasonably get it without being crazy. For me, you know, that a lot of people would, would look at some of those RME audio interfaces and say, why do I need that? I've got, you know, this audio to DJ and it sounds fine to me. The truth of the matter is it sounds fine to most people. And the further truth of that matter is that it's not going to make a damn bit of difference if you're playing on 90% of the systems that you're going to play on. I'll put it to you this way. Uh, about two years ago, Kevin Saunderson played at a local club here. And this uh, place is called Mask, and they're the only place within a reasonable distance of here that has a sound system like this. I mean, this is they have a function one system, so if you follow... Uh, you know, live PA sound on any level. You've heard of Function 1. This is top-grade stuff, okay? And I heard Kevin Saunderson play there on a Control S4, and I did not have one single complaint about the sound quality. Okay, so it, I'm kind of of the school of thought. If it's good enough for Function 1 and Kevin Saunderson and it sounds good, I don't feel like I'm really going to run into any sound quality issues as long as I buy something that's reasonably decent, you know, go bang for buck here. I, I don't want to be the one that encourages you to spend thousands of dollars uh, to buy a bunch of fancy sounding audio gear and then put it through these club systems where you're in this loud environment where you've got a whole bunch of drunk people falling around you, people dancing. You know, it's not an ideal listening environment. And most places are going to mix you down to mono. They're going to not be the optimal listening environment. You're going to have reverbs. You're going to have all these other issues. So get something DJ-oriented. Get something that serves your needs and sounds good to you. And call it good enough. That's my personal advice when it comes to that. I'm sorry it took me like 
half an hour to answer your question, Joe. <laughs> but uh, that's how I feel about it. Your mileage may vary, and I would also never tell you to not spend money on something that you want. You know, there's there's no reason that I need a MacBook Pro that costs, you know, $2,300 to play my DJ gigs. But I wanted one, so tough. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's kind of my view on it. I wanted one. I like them. They're solid. Could I have bought a $400 laptop? Yeah, I could have gotten away with that. But I had the disposable income at the time, and I bought it, and I understand that. Sometimes we just like toys, and I'm not going to lambast anybody for that. But do you need it? Nah. And then the final thing that kind of affects your sound quality, or your perceived sound quality. I keep trying to say perceived sound quality, because it's all about perception. It's all about what we hear and how we translate that. And that is the placebo effect. The placebo effect is huge with sound. We were talking earlier about the, uh, you know, kind of expensive, like these monster cables and all these things that cost so much money. Uh, I had something fly across my Facebook feed the other day that was a $10,000 Ethernet cable. Okay, this is is a network cable that was meant for, like, some kind of home audio setup, and it was $10,000 for a cable. This is insanity. This is people that have way too much money to spend and are very gullible please do not buy into this stuff um but it's not just that the placebo effect is 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 massive with this there's a lot of uh kind of a b testing that had gone on for a while on the internet between people where they're trying to determine can you hear the difference between a wave file and a 320 mp3 or whatever level of mp3 and uh you know most people screw it up there's no real consistency over people picking the better one, and in a lot of cases, they pick the worst-sounding one. Uh, so it's one of those things to where, at, at a certain point, like I said, you just have to say it's good enough, um, present the best that you can, you know, but the a listener's enjoyment is not solely dependent on sound quality. I mean, you've got to think about that's not the only thing that matters. You know, the, a live environment... Is, is going to be massively different than if you have, like, a sound-treated theater room in your basement with acoustic tiles and a perfectly tuned sound system. Like, nobody's going to hear your club music that way, okay? So, it's it's fine. But, you know, you don't want it to sound like garbage, and I get that. But uh, I'll say that I've been using NI gear to play, uh, that's Native Instruments, like the Audio 8 DJ, the Control S4 and S8, um, and then my Denon mixer, and even before that, I was using old Pioneer gear, and I, I've never really had any sound quality issues. I've never, at least I've never noticed any, and I've never had any complaints. Um, I've also never played, like, a festival in front of 20,000 people. Um, so maybe when you're getting to that point, it's worth at least looking into it. But like I said, if it's good enough for Kevin, it's good enough for me. So Phil Morse uh, wrote an article, I think we referred to him last week, Um, he runs the website Digital DJ Tips, and you should definitely check him out, Uh, he and his staff have a whole bunch of great articles uh, around the idea of DJing digitally, and uh, they're a very kind of forward-thinking group, so it's kind of nice and refreshing to see some of their stuff, but... Uh, Phil wrote an article, and I wanted to kind of read a little blurb from that. He says, Have you ever been to a gig that changed your life where the sound quality was bloody awful? Dance the night away listening to a shite PA system in a god-awful dive of a club. Turned up an oldie on an AM radio station in your car and smiled from ear to ear, getting totally lost in the moment? 
sang at the top of your voice to the chart countdown on FM or satellite radio, played a favorite track on a cassette tape over and over and over again, and decided to form your own band there and then. Listen to a scratched, dull old recording of a great song from a badly pressed 10 tracks per side compilation vinyl LP and felt just like you did when you first heard it. Spend your whole damn summer streaming playlists from Spotify, DJed with poor equipment on a badly set up PA system and had a queue of people telling you that was the best night they'd ever had. Congratulations, you are one of the 99% of real people in real world situations who have been life-changingly moved by music Music of a quality that the 1% of purists out there want you to feel is simply not good enough. Forget the message, worry about the format, is their message. Damn you for having the best of times nonetheless. I couldn't have put it better myself, Phil. Thank you for that. That's just one of those things to where, you know, like I said, at a certain point, it's got to be good enough. Perfectionism is just going to hold you back. So please don't let this hold you up too much educate yourself get the best you can reasonably afford and then be okay with it so i've got some final tips obviously i'm just going to reiterate stay out of the red it's red for a reason okay it's warning you that something's not right clipping and hard limiting will affect your sound quality so if for no other reason it's making you sound worse so please turn it down all right, keep it at uh, my personal recommendation is keep it at 320 kilobit or uh, 256 AAC. That's what iTunes often sells as uh, iTunes songs. That's the lowest I personally am willing to go. I would try to keep it there unless you just absolutely positively cannot live on without playing that, you know, 128 kilobit per second demo that you like ripped off of somebody's SoundCloud. I get it. I know what it's like to really, really, really want to play that track, but you'd better be aware of what it's doing to the sound quality of your set. So uh, my personal recommendation, like I said, try to keep it at 320. Uh, minimize the number of links in your sound chain. We talked about Function 1 earlier, and Tony Andrews of Function 1 uh, once gave an example uh, that's like planes of glass. So if you think, uh, if you've got, say, eight squares eight panes of glass and you've got them all stacked on top of each other just looks like one thick pane of glass uh unless one of them's dirty if you know the third or fifth one in has a speck on it or has a streak on it or something like that or is a different color it's going to affect the way that the light comes through all of those panes of glass so that's kind of the same way it works with your sound chain so if you've got a mixer, you've got a CDJ and it goes into a mixer and then that mixer goes into an effects unit and that effects unit goes into some other box and it daisy chained into somebody else's mixer and then that mixer goes to the house sound. Uh, sometimes those scenarios are unavoidable, but the more you can minimize that, the better because it's less points of failure. And the most common problem with doing all those kind of daisy chaining things is just introducing noise somewhere, which obviously affects your sound quality. When we're talking about making recordings, uh, either if you're producing or making a, uh, you know, recording a set, try to make a, a lossless version or at least a, a lossless as you can version. Because if you're, if you, all you have is a bunch of 320 kilobit MP3 files, they're already compressed, so you can't 
realistically, you know, you could render a WAV file of your mix, but it's not, you can't just upscale in that way. So, yeah, try to, uh, if you're making something for posterity, try to record it in lossy, lossless or as lossless as possible. You render your mix to a WAV file and set it aside and then burn it to CD or encode your MP3s from there, that sort of thing. Use a good quality audio uh, audio interface designed for DJing, but don't break the bank over it. Buy what you can afford and don't let it be a bottleneck to progress. That's a note that I wrote down to say at the end here. We kind of covered that. That's just my personal feelings on the matter. Uh, like I said, your mileage may vary and not everybody's going to agree with me on that. I think the Native Instruments gear sounds just fine. I think that the Rain gear sounds just fine. I think that the uh, M-Audio gear sounds fine, to be honest. Um at least on the, the systems that I've heard them on. So it's just not something that I sweat. Um, and then finally, have fun. Do your best, present your best, and don't sweat it. So Joseph, I hope that answered your question. And audience, I hope that that was very informative for you. And if you have any questions or anything you'd like me to try to address or dig down deeper into, would love to hear from you. Um, you can go to passionatedj.com forward slash ask and leave me a voicemail. Uh, you can use your computer microphone, webcam, cell phone, tablet, anything that's got a microphone on it. You can use this widget. Leave me a voicemail. I would love to hear from you, hear your voice, and put you in the podcast and do my best to answer your questions. And if I don't know the answer, I will try to track it down for you because that's what we do. We try to make better DJs out of passion and purpose. I'll see you guys next time for episode 15, and take care. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning. I'm